Hello, this is Dan Lebitard. Welcome to another edition of South Beach Sessions. It's been a lot of fun and illuminating to talk to my friend John Skipper, the new CEO of Meadowlark Media, a project we're starting around here that we will begin to unfurl here with this and other episodes where we introduce you to people who are going to be in our world now as we expand as a pirate ship and as an entity that tries to sail into the future of digital media. And I've enjoyed talking to my friend, John. I usually do. I think that many of you have gotten a pretty good look at who he is and his articulation for this vision. If you've heard episodes one and two, because I thought episode two was particularly strong in terms of introducing you to this man and what he's about and who he is as he leads this company into the future. What I wanted to do with the next two episodes is talk a little more about the breadth of his career. He's had an interesting career. You're talking about a man who over a decade was the most powerful person in sports and over a few years, five years, six years, made for Disney more money than ESPN has ever made, was Disney's leading moneymaker. Think about that for a second over a period of time, and that put him in some big rooms and some big meetings with big power, and I thought you'd like to get a look at the machine from the inside because usually we don't get to get where the power is. So over the next couple of episodes, now that we've introduced you to who our CEO is, I want to sort of go through his resume with him and with you so you could get a cleaner look at some of the big things that he's had to be involved in that have changed sports and sports content the way you've consumed it over the last decade or so. So here again, the CEO of Metal Arc Media, our friend, our new leader, John Skipper. This is part three of what might be a four-part series or might be a five-part series. We're not sure just yet, but here's part three with John Skipper. When you were starting ESPN the magazine or starting ESPN.com, what you regard as the most fun you've ever had in a job, is it either of those? Is it Rolling Stone what is the place that you would identify this is the most fun I had working? Because it's going to be now. It's going to be whatever you do with the rest of your work life over here. But before that, what was it? Well, I'm going to not want to rank those experiences. I can characterize those experiences. The best experiences I've ever had were when you're working with a bunch of people who you respect, uh, have affection for, admiration for, in a collaborative effort where you all kind of feel like you have a common mission or what you're doing matters to other people. Rolling Stone is one of those experiences. And I know because I started as a secretary and one of my jobs, I was in the subscription department, and one of my jobs was to answer phone calls from unhappy subscribers. And those unhappy subscribers would call and say, my magazine didn't arrive. And I'm unhappy. I expected to get it today. Where is it? So it mattered to them. And they would call and say, gee, it arrived in my mailbox and it's torn. That told me they really, really didn't want a torn copy of of Rolling Stone. They wanted a pristine copy. They'd call and tell me, I can't believe you gave a bad review. Oh, I wrote a bad review one time of Bob Dylan's album Saved. How dare you? Bob Dylan is is the great poet of our times. How could you say it wasn't a great record? And I was very successful at this job, and it catapulted me to some other very menial job in in a matter of about a year. Because as a Southerner, they would call and they'd be irate. They'd be from New York. They'd be from San Francisco. And I'd say, well, I'm sorry that your magazine was torn. And I can understand that you want a copy that's not torn. 
I'm going to get one in the mail for you. And it should be there in about a week. Enjoy reading the other one. And then you'll get a replacement copy. And uh, I was a high-level service executive. And uh, that, but, but by the way, I did learn that I care about doing things that people on the receiving end, it matters to them. It mattered. You heard me talk passionately about how important ESPN was to people that canceled their subscription. The magazine was important to people. And gosh, that was fun. ESPN.com was important to people. Playing fantasy football is important to people. I want to work on things that matter to people. When people called me and said, oh my gosh, that OJ documentary, that mattered. I don't want to work on widgets and I don't want to work on abstract ways to make money. I don't want to trade currency and make money because I can figure out that the German mark is going to rise against the uh, Japanese yen at some point by hedge one or short one. That's just making money. I am very happy that I've been able to be compensated for doing things that were fun and interesting and provocative and stimulating with people I like. That's been a great privilege. Rolling Stone during its heyday, what was the best job you had there? How high did you end up there and why did you leave? You mean the best job other than answering the phone and and sending people untoward? You you rose to something slightly better than that in the company over time. It was a fun place. Rolling Stone started in San Francisco in 1967, moved to New York in 1977, had a couple of heydays, certainly the early dog-eared days of those those quarterfold magazines during Woodstock and the Summer of Love. But I was there during its most successful financial days and when it had the widest circulation and distribution, great collection of writers, photographers, editors, and um my last job there was actually as publisher of Us magazine. Jan Winter, who was a great supporter of mine and a mentor and who uh, helped me move up in his organization, bought Us magazine, made me the publisher. So I ran the whole magazine, sold the ads, worked on the content and the covers. That was a lot of fun. And it was a place where you could move up because it wasn't that big. Uh, there were only about 100 people at Rolling Stone when I got there. And I was willing to move around. And I did newsstand sales and I did public communications releases at one point. And I wrote subscription copy. I wrote this thing um, one time that I remember very fondly, which was a series of renewal letters. And if you subscribe to the magazine, your subscription was about to run out. You would start to get a series of letters asking you to renew. And I wrote the copy for those. And I wrote one one time that was a letter from Hunter S. Thompson that said, I know where you live. If you look on the front, it has your address on it. And if you don't renew, I'm going to come to your house and rip out your heart and lungs. So send us $9.95 for a year of Rolling Stone. And it was massively uh, successful. I did not remember the copy word for word. So if somebody has a copy of that and says I misquoted myself, it's okay. And uh, that's where I got to spend a little time with Hunter S. Thompson. That was a great thrill. Look, it's been one of the great features of my career that I've gotten to meet enormous numbers of talented writers, artists, art directors, photographers, editors, people, high-level on-air radio talent. And uh, it's been a great pleasure, right? I like creative stimulation. I think intellectual curiosity is one of the great things that people can have and getting to combine that intellectual curiosity with intellectuals is even better. 
What's the story behind the details in you receiving the news? You're the president of ESPN. You are fairly immediately the most powerful figure in sports. Well, there, you know, and I, I don't think you've ever heard this story. So you have hit upon something that is kind of telling. So I was a chief content officer, not by title. It was executive vice president of content, but people understand what chief content officer is better. George Bodenheimer was the president. I had for years and years at ESPN, you got an annual review. And one of the questions you have to, had to ask was, how happy are you in this job? What other job would you like to have? And I always wrote for the seven years that I was a chief content officer, I'm very happy in this job. If it's the last job I ever have at ESPN is um, I would be happy continuing to work for George Bodenheimer, but George, because he was the only one to read it because he was my boss. George, if you ever leave, I'd like to be present. So just after Thanksgiving in November of 2011, George called me on, I don't know, I think literally like the Friday or Saturday after Thanksgiving, but could be slightly different and said, John, I'd like to come over to your house and I'm going to bring a couple of cups of coffee and a couple of bagels and have you and I just sit down somewhere and have a little chat. And I'm like, okay, uh, of course. George had never done that before. We met places. We met at coffee shops and we, we met at his house. He had a study. I did not have a study. And so I thought, wonder what he's got on his mind. And he got there and we had a little chit chat. And then almost without any preference, he said, John, I'm going to retire December 31st of this year. Uh, and keep in mind, it was like November 28th or 29th. He said, and we're going to announce this week that you're going to be the next president of ESPN. I was flabbergasted. There was no hint that George was going to retire. And to my amusement, to our amusement, it was picked up the next week that George Bodenheimer had appointed a younger man uh, as a successor at ESPN. And George was younger than I was. And George, I think we talked earlier, Dan, about the scale of ESPN and how that really did take over your life in a way. And I think George, who's a man of great balance and is a wonderful family and wants to fish and is a guy without pretension, I think it thought, I've had a good run. Uh, you know, it's probably been enough. And I'm going to have John have the chance to do it himself. And sure enough, that was only 31 plus a couple of days, 33 days later, I got the job. And I'll never forget on December 8th, and I'm pretty sure I remember that date right, I called George and said, you know, George, something's come up and I was thinking about this. I'm trying to decide what to do. What do you think? And he said, I think you're the president. And uh, why don't you make a decision? Because you, you might as well get used to doing it now. And I did. He was an unbelievable supportive boss, uh, gave me an unbelievable amount of freedom as chief, chief content officer. And all those things would not have been possible if uh, – George uh, didn't say yes. And he said yes almost every time. And it was sometimes because I had a good idea. Were you overwhelmed immediately or were you ready immediately? Which were you closer to, overwhelmed or ready? I think I was ready immediately, Dan. And I was ready immediately for a very uh, clear reason. George had had a very stable management team. In fact, George, about the most of the entire time George was president, he had the same senior management group. So I just inherited that group and they really knew what they were doing. You know, a woman named Christine Dreesen was the CFO a guy named Sean Bratches ran the 
affiliate sales. Ed Earhart ran the ad sales. So I was surrounded by people who knew what they were doing. So I wasn't overwhelmed at all. It probably took me a little time to put my own imprint on the job, right? For a while, all I did was try to do what George did. I never actually had t-shirts that said what? WWGD. What would George do? But I kind of did what George did just because I'd studied under him for quite a while. And then at some point I found my own legs. I can't actually tell you what project that was or where, but um, the job never overwhelmed me because of the responsibility. It ended up overwhelming me because of the scale. Help me understand some things as it regards to sports rights. You said you were proud of it. Did you make any mistakes there? Anything that you regard as mistakes where you overspent or something you shouldn't have done? Or is that too close to the bone? Because you figured out before before most that live sports were going to be the only thing that people weren't going to fast forward the commercials on. I certainly made my share of mistakes. I have more regrets than identifiable mistakes. I'll reject one mistake, which is I don't think we overpaid for things. That's been something thrown around sometimes, particularly in regard to the NBA, last NBA deal we've done. I said then, and I believe it has been pretty dramatically affirmed that the NBA, we did a nine-year deal, and that is going to turn out to be great value and important. Adam Silver is in charge of the NBA. Oh, my gosh, he's a smart guy, great partner and friend of mine. And I think that's been pretty clear, right? We've seen the NBA rise to the occasion, not only as a sport, but as an institution in our society at this point. And I'm proud of that deal. And we didn't overpay. And what do I regret? I regret losing the World Cup. One of my proudest accomplishments was getting the World Cup for 2010 and 2014, which I did just three weeks into my job as chief content officer. Because I did see that the football and particularly the World Cup was going to become a huge event in the United States. It just was. To me, it is the world's greatest sporting event. And I wanted to give it its due on the on the air of ESPN, which we did in 2010 in South Africa, 2014 in Brazil. And we lost it. And it's now on Fox and will be next December. Didn't you, didn't you lose it because of corruption? Didn't you lose it because of corruption and then send your investigative arm to go break, bring down that fraud bladder? Didn't Isn't that how that happened? Or do I am I misremembering it? You refer to it as a fraud bladder? That fraud, that Sepp Blatter guy, that wasn't it wrought with corruption. Didn't you lose it because it was wrought with corruption because FIFA I, is corrupt? I've answer that, but I can't help but give you the fun of, I thought you said that bladder, meaning, you know, that organ. And I used to say about Sepp Blatter that the fact that his first name is short for septic and his second name is a, is a receptacle for <laughs> urine should tell you all you need to know about him and how he runs FIFA. Yeah, FIFA was a dramatically corrupt organization. And a shocking number of the people who ran FIFA and who were on the committee to decide who to give the World Cup to in 20, let's see, 18, 22, and 26, it was a corrupt process. And indeed, people have been indicted because of what went on during that process. And I do not believe it was a fair bidding process. I do not believe we lost in a fair manner. I, however, still regret not figuring out 
how to overcome that. How to bribe uh, them better? How to bribe them better? <laughs> no, we were at the Walt Disney Company. We didn't do that. And I didn't want to do that, and I don't want to do it now. And if somebody had said to me, gee, if you'll bribe this person, you'll get it, I would have said no. But I do regret losing it. It still kind of stings. What else? I regretted never being able to get the NHL back on ESPN. It was the one, if you looked at the world of sports, we really had pretty much everything you wanted to have, except the hockey. And uh, NBC, of course, has been a great home for hockey. I understand why Gary Bettman did that deal. And I, I felt like I came so close a couple of times to convincing them that come back to ESPN because they'd been on ESPN and it should be on ESPN, or at least a portion of it. And uh, I regret not being able to do that. But no, most, most of the big deals have proven to be solid. It, it's better to have every Duke North Carolina game than not. It's better to have every Alabama-Auburn game, an LSU-Mississippi State game. And uh, it works to have a college World Series, and it works women's college softball. I mean, no, I didn't regret much of the deals. I think the deals worked and get all the sports rights work. How were you able to put together the college football playoff? How difficult was it? What were the greatest challenges in sort of inventing that? I wouldn't say I invented it. I might have once or twice gotten carried away. Everybody does. What I did do was return the college football playoff in its current form back to ESPN. It was on ESPN. The commissioners really created it. And um, it had gone, I think, to Fox for one or two cycles. And there's a funny story behind this. We wanted to get it back. And the instructions from the selling the college football playoff was represented by a legendary sports figure who was close to John McCormick in John McCormick's old company, CAA, named Barry Frank. And Barry was trying to sell it to me. And I was doing this working for George, who we've talked about. There are seven games, the four bowl games leading into the semifinals, leading into the finals. Seven games. They said, you know, we'll let you put one of those four on ESPN. Then you got to put the rest on ABC. And I said, George, I don't see why we should accept that. And he said, well, what do you recommend we do? I said, I recommend that we tell them that we accept their proposition and for that we'll pay you. And I can't remember. I think it was $150 million. And I said, and we then tell them, George, if we get to put all of it on ESPN, we'll pay you $200 million. And um, I was in a cab on vacation in Paris with my family. And um, I remember riding around in a taxi cab, my family being impatient that I was working. This speaks again to the scale of the job. And I was on with Barry Frank and uh, we were friends, but Barry was very unhappy with me about putting that in front of him. He's like, this is not right. This is not fair. What are you doing? I said, Barry, I followed the rules. You want to put it on ABC. It's $150 million <laughs> a year. If you'll let me put it on ESPN, it's $200 million. He said, no, no, we want $200 million for putting it all on ABC. I said, that's not the way we make our money. We make our money through those distribution fees on ESPN. We want the game to buttress the value of ESPN in that distribution system, you and I talked about that earlier, and we're happy to pay you more money. By the way, the underbidder, I think, was bidding 140. I could have these numbers wrong, but they're directionally right. And you know, of course, what they did. Can you take us through a basketball negotiation? Like, I know this is a complicated question, 
But what are the interesting things? You're talking about billions of dollars, John. Like that, The scale and scope of that is so large. Take us through how it is that something like that comes to be. You know, it's, it's probably not quite as arduous and lengthy as it seems like it should be. And by the way, the amount of money does not really add that much to complexity, right? Oddly enough, doing a deal for $10 million for a secondary or tertiary conference is not much less or more complicated than doing a $300 million deal for the SEC. So in basketball, we did deals the way I always wanted to do them. I always believed to do a deal, you sat down, and the first thing you said was, what's important to you? Tell me what's important to you. So that's what we did. I remember we met Adam and I with some of our colleagues, and uh, we asked what was important to them, and they told us. They asked what was important to us, and we told them. I always liked for the other person to go first, because if you let them go first, they would tell you the things they wanted, and it was almost certain that they told you 10 things, you're going to do five of them anyway. So then you could say, okay, we'll give you one, two, three, four, and five. Now, as to six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, let's talk about those. So you're already part of the way there. It also was a guide to me, and I always believed we would give them an honest answer. Here's what's important to us. I always believed that before you went into negotiation, you need to sit down as a team and say, what do we want to get and how much money are we willing to pay for it? And what do we need to justify that? And when you got that, you quit. Now, there are many, many smart people who disagree with me who believe in grinding down to the last dime and and they believe there's a winner or loser in a negotiation. I always thought there can be two winners and we're a winner if we get what we want for what is a reasonable recompense. And that's how we went about it. It's a grinding process. I probably am naive about how much grinding it is because I was in the big meetings. We set the parameters. Other people would do most of the hard work. They'd come back and tell us, here's the list of things that are outstanding. One of the hardest things you always had to work on was the leagues always had a number too. We, we want to get to this number. So when you had a good negotiation, you'd try to say, we'd like to get you as close to that number as possible. Or you'd even say, we'll get you that number, but here's what we need for it. You know they couldn't give you some of those things, but now you're acceding to the fact that, okay, it's worth this under these circumstances. So now you've also put the ball back in their court, bad pun intended, and they have to come up with, oh, we can get the money you want. We won't, but we got to do the things they want. And then you'd have a way to sort of chip away both sides. We can't give you that. Okay, we can't give you as much money. Okay, we can give you this. Okay, we can give you that much money. So they were mostly fun if you like the people you're negotiating with and those sort of mutual respect and admiration. You ask about basketball. I love Adam. Adam is a, a great guy, a fair guy, a smart guy, has been a tremendous leader for the league and an even mm. better human being. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. True or false? At one point, the company was so flush making money 
that you were making X number of millions of dollars per day. And if someone didn't guarantee you a business venture that was more than those millions of dollars per day, they could not get in a room with you for a meeting. True or false? Well, it's apocryphal, meaning it's true, but not exact, right? So it was a guide I gave people. So you could get that from a bunch of people. People would, uh, I'll never forget a friend of mine called me up one time, a good friend, a lovely guy. And he said, you know, John, I've started this new business of self-publishing and um, we will take what anybody writes and make it into a book. And sometimes people like to um, have blurbs on the back from people that are famous that they like. And sometimes they'd like to publish it under an imprint of some organization. And he said, we'd like to be able to license the ESPN name. And we'd like to be able to say on the back, ESPN says this is a great book, or we'd like to have the person say ESPN Publishing Presents or something. And he said, we'll guarantee you $1 million. It's like Austin Powers, right? Or, or Mike Myers, I forget the guy's name. $1 million. And I said, my friend, I love you, but we have to make, at the time it was about $12 million a day. So you've just offered me to guarantee me from January the 1st, at 12 a.m. midnight to 2 a.m. And I'm just not going to talk to you unless you can guarantee me a whole day. I didn't think it was a good idea either, by the way. It's a bad use of our brand and wouldn't have been appropriate. But, yeah, I would tell people that. People would come in and say, I got an idea for something we're going to do. I'd say, how much is it worth? And they'd say, oh, you know, I think we can make $3 million over two years. And we'd get that off an awful lot in licensing, right? People would come in and say, they had somebody like to license ESPN brand and make ESPN Kleenex. Now, first of all, it's another bad idea, but I'm just using it for example. And I'd say, it's not worth our time. They'd say, why not? It's just found money. And I would say, nothing is found money. If somebody's got to respond to them. Somebody's going to take a complaint from somebody. Some sales, some one of our advertisers not going to like it. Somebody's got to track it. You think it's found money, but you need to think about scale and if you have that kind of organization, you have to prioritize what makes a difference. You seem to mention earlier, philosophically, the idea of being a first follower as opposed to being a first at some sort of evolution because you don't want to get there too far ahead of the curve. Is that what happened with ESPN The Phone? Because as I recall, ESPN The Phone ends up being a bad idea, but it wasn't a bad idea. It was just too early for the idea. The phone technology wasn't where it needed to be. Do I have that wrong or do I have it right? You have it right, but not completely right. Meaning you're right that the technology was not there, but it was not just too early. It was a bad idea. A very bad idea. Didn't seem like a bad idea. So I'll try to make this brief because this is a little, I hope it's not excruciating detail. I think it's actually kind of funny. So there was a moment in time, and I can't remember what year this was, early 2000s, I think, 2002, three, when Congress passed a law, and I think it was Congress, somehow or other it became law that if you had a telephone number with one telephone provider, and you wanted to change telephone providers, you could keep your number. Now, that seems crazy, and everybody now goes, what are you talking about? But in the old days, if you wanted to change from one telephone company to the other, you got a new telephone number. So you had to get all your friends to know you had a new number. So if you could port your number, we thought more people would change carriers. And so what we set up was an ESPN phone. 
because we thought people would like to get a foam branded ESPN with scores at the top and it looks sleek and great. And they don't have any loyalty to the telephone companies. And it was a day of the razor. The razor was the coolest phone going. So we're going to make a cool phone. It was a flip phone, by the way, to tell you just how cool it was not. <laughs> but we were completely and utterly wrong. Instead, what happened when you could port your phone number is the telephone companies created all these loyalty programs. The telephone companies are tough mothers, right? They were like, we're not going to lose our customers to ESPN. So they created the family plan. Those were the days. The portability of numbers is part of what created the, your whole family can get free phones. And our business plan required that people buy an expensive flip razor-like phone because they cared about ESPN. And it just was a disaster. The telephone companies fought back. They created loyalty programs. They gave the phones away for free. And I forget, we ran a Super Bowl ad and we thought we would get hundreds of thousands of orders. And I think we got like 13,000. The best news on that is, and George Bodenheimer gets some credit for this, is there was no blame culture there. So it was like, okay, we messed up. We miscalculated. We got the market wrong. We lost some money, some real money. But let's get out of it before we lose more money. You know, it was a lesson learned, which is when you make mistakes, the worst thing is thinking that you haven't made a mistake and that you're going to double down on making sure you are right. Being right is less important than being adaptable because you're going to be right sometimes and you're going to be wrong sometimes. Do you have any good stories that involve the dirty boxing game? Because zone is in the boxing business, and I've got to imagine – that's a dirty, dirty business. I've got to imagine there's all sorts of stuff that happens in negotiations that uh, feels a bit like our septic bladder situation. Well, yes. The, the biggest problem with boxing, people know me and they knew we weren't going to do anything dirty. I'm sure things happen in that world that would not comport with my general sense of values and ethics. But I don't think the thing wrong with the sport is corruption. The thing wrong with the sport is it is completely and utterly disorganized so that you can't actually get anything done. I mean, it's a little bit like if you had college football and everybody decided to only play the people they wanted to play. And so North Carolina and Duke decided they don't want to play each other. Wilder and Joshua, you can't make the fight because they couldn't decide at the same time they wanted to fight each other. So how bad would it be for the fans if you couldn't get Ohio State and Michigan to play each other? How bad would it be if you played a regular season of the NFL and then most of the teams wouldn't agree to play in the playoffs? So you couldn't find out who the best team is on the field or in this case in the ring. The whole sport has been messed up because not pay-per-view is a fine idea. It's a good idea. But lots of ideas are good ideas until they end up dominating something. And so now all boxers have come to a point. DAZN helped break this up a little bit. It's not true right now. But it, a moment in time before DAZN started, the end game for all boxers was to get in the pay-per-view business and cash in. So they didn't want to lose. So early in their career, they wouldn't fight great opponents. Because Oscar De La Hoya, who was one of the greatest boxers of all time, I think he lost five times. I could have that wrong. Could be more. I, I can't remember if he lost five times and drew two times but and won 45 or something like that. It's a great record. It's a record like Alabama. 
But what if Alabama didn't ever want to lose because someday they wanted to do a pay-per-view against Clemson, and so they went four seasons without playing Auburn or LSU because they didn't want to lose. So the problem with boxing is it needs to be organized. Uh, You have all these unaligned interests because promoters are attached to networks. Fighters are attached to promoters. So fighter A can't fight fighter B because they can't figure which network to fight on. They can't decide that it's a good thing. Boxing could return to its rightful place as a very important sport. It retains its appeal. If you had fighters fighting people that people want to see and they weren't dodging fights and they weren't waiting for the big payday. And if there were playoffs, I would love to organize boxing and create playoffs where the eighth best heavyweight in the world fights the first best and the second fights the seventh and third fights the sixth and the fourth fights the fifth. And then you got quarterfinals, semifinals and finals. Oh my gosh, it would be huge, but you cannot get the disparate interest to get together. And do that. The reason I asked the question is I remember calling you one time and Deontay Wilder and his people had just been in your office. I don't know if that is a story that we can tell, but that is the question I had in my mind. The idea of dealing with Deontay Wilder and his people when they're upset with you seems like a story that would be rich and bountiful in terms of me soiling my pants in my office if Deontay Wilder and his people were less than happy with me. We didn't meet in my office. We met, I forget, at a hotel, I think, in a conference room. And I had actually made a disrespectful mistake, right? Which is I had gone around the people who manage Deontay Wilder, both his manager, his advisor, and um, I'd called him directly and tried to convince him to do a fight. It was a breach of protocol, by the way. It's just a protocol. It's not ethical or crazy, but I had breached the protocol and I'd done it to people I didn't really know. Most specifically, Shelly Finkel, who I now do know quite well and I'm an admirer of. Shelly's a good guy and he's dealt with me straightforwardly. So, yeah, I walked in a room where Al Heyman and Shelly Finkel and Deontay's trainer and Deontay were all sitting in the table. And their expressions as I walked in let me know that none of them were happy with the way I'd approached this or how I'd done it. And some of those people are quite formidable, particularly Mr. Wilder and uh, Mr. Wilder's trainer. And I think there was also another advisor and they were giving me the death stare. And I'm not a good death stare guy. I think I'm reasonably tough for a human being, but I'm not Deontay Wilder tough. And yeah, was it intimidating? It absolutely was. I tried to do what I usually do, right? Which is sort of Southern charm them and and laugh and have some fun. And they weren't really having any of it. It was clear. I don't think they were completely dismissive of the idea, but it was clear they were not happy with me. It did not take them long to call and inform me that they would not be doing what I wanted them to do. A little bit of a humiliating experience, but also a learning experience. And by the way, Shelly Finkel, he did bring Deontay by my office later, and it was like a different human being, right? He was charming and soft-spoken and polite and shook my hand and put his arm around me. We took a nice picture. So I think a lot of what Deontay does is showmanship in the ring. He's quite good at it. He's a skilled fighter. He's a compelling story. He's a nice young man in those ways. We laughed. We both, Avery Johnson is a mutual friend. He was coaching basketball at that point in 
I believe at the University of Alabama. I think Deontay lives in Tuscaloosa. I think that's how they became friends. I know he is an Alabaman. And we laughed and we told stories about the South and, and he was charming. And uh, so I'm an admirer of his and uh, I hope someday still to see, maybe on your show, Dan, maybe I'll go make them an offer to fight on the radio show. By the way, even better, maybe we'll just pretend they're fighting. It's radio. Nobody will know. In steps Deontay Wilder into the ring, followed by Anthony Joshua. There's a great flurry of blows. <laughs> well, the statute of limitations is up on some of this stuff. What's the deal you wanted to make at some point in your career that you were super close to making that you still remember now and are like, oh, man, if I could have made that happen. That was one that I really wanted to make happen that didn't come to fruition because – you had so much clout and so much uh, ability to make things happen that I don't imagine there are too many of these that you couldn't make happen. You mentioned the losing of the World Cup. It might be that. I don't know which one it would be. I've mentioned before, but another real disappointment was I was working with a guy named John Collins on the NHL deal, and I thought we were quite close. We'd made a very aggressive bid. I'd done what is often smart, which is, keep a little money in my back pocket so I could raise the bid one more time. And um, I expected to hear back from John that, gee, we could get there if you could just sweeten this a little bit. And, you, you, you know, in deals, you kind of have feelings. It may be like playing poker, right? You feel like you got the hand. You're going to win. You put the money in the pot. And then when somebody turns their cards over and you didn't win, you have that sinking feeling well, that's a feeling I had when John Collins called me and said, we have decided to renew with NBC. And uh, it still stings a little bit. It was one of the places where I really, you know, I was a pretty relentless negotiator, pretty relentless trying to get a deal done, stayed on top of it. And that was one where I really felt like I'd worked hard, done the right things, and that we would get it. It was the right decision for them. They're seldom right and wrong decisions, right? They're slightly more right, slightly more wrong decisions. Turned out to be a fine decision for them, but disappointing for me. And then in thinking about it, I also was quite disappointed we couldn't make Tony Kornheiser work on Monday Night Football. That somehow we couldn't get what I could feel Tony could do. I mean, I thought Tony could be kind of the most interesting guy in some ways since Howard Cosell. I mean, you know Tony. His level of intellect and wit and uh, how quick it is, is just extraordinary. And this was early on in my chief content officer days, and I wanted to shake things up. I thought, you know, like you, it sort of startles me sometimes, the reverence people have for athletic events. They're just games. John, that's what I, I was so surprised that – Dennis Miller rolled over on his back and allowed people to rub his belly as soon as Bob Kraft gave him a football. That Tony Kornheiser in those spaces couldn't work because he wasn't allowed to be anything other than someone who was genuflecting inside of the cathedral. I've always thought that the audience is so built in that chances should be taken with the broadcasters because you're not going to lose the audience if you swing and miss. But it's corporate partners that make that difficult because – Football, as you've seen, is conservative, and there are, om there are only so many chances like that they're willing to make. I thought it was a brilliant idea. I thought the execution was the problem. I don't disagree, and, of course, I'm responsible for both, so I guess I get a 50 there. It's not only the football partners, though. Look, the 
what I would call sort of the production establishment of live events, which started, originated with the broadcast networks, but which ESPN practiced. And of course, they would feel like they had to practice it as they got further up in the hierarchy of sporting events. And of course, Monday night football was hallowed ground. And when we put Tony in there, what we wanted to get was some of that wit. We didn't want to do X's and O's. To me, you don't need to explain what's going on. You do in radio. And I thought, gee, we don't need to say so-and-so turns around, hands the ball to so-and-so, and he gets three yards off the right, and it'll be second and seven. I'm like, I got it. The graphics say it's now second and seven. And I, I can see Peyton Manning. I know who it is. He turns around, he handed the ball to Edger and James. You see that? Over right tackle. Why do we need to describe it? Why couldn't we be having fun? That was going on. Well, we couldn't we be laughing? And um, I'll never forget Tony never figuring out how to get rhythm because he would go for notes afterwards and he would be told, look, when a pass has been completed and the guy's running down for a touchdown, you got to lay out, you got to stop. We got to describe the action and tell what's going on. It's a football game. And that's the point. It's just a football game. It's not a cathedral. And that disappointment, I was disappointed in myself, Tony, as well, because he's a singular talent. And I thought it was an opportunity to do something that could have been remembered the way people remember Howard Cosell and the way John Madden was at some point, right? Very few people, Charles Barkley, have sort of managed to stand out. It's, I'll get in trouble with for this, but I'm no longer in the live sports business. The amazing thing is that the highest paid people in um, – the sporting business are the people who call games and there is not a shred of statistical data, analytic evidence that the person calling the game has any dramatic effect on the audience of that game. The teams, the competitiveness of, of the game, I think the quality of the production and maybe the announcer is part of that. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody. It's a craft. People do it well. It just is not correlated to the financial aspects of the game. I guess it's correlated to pride, but it's correlated to pride. And the people who judge whether you're doing a good game or not are the people who think that there are rules around how the game should be called and the reverence you should have for it. I always enjoyed, I mean, maybe the greatest guy who ever did that broke all the rules. Vince Gully, right? First of all, Vince Gully was in a booth by himself. How in the world could you be in a booth by yourself and not have your your baseball expert who was going to tell you what actually happened or or actually have two people? And we were very guilty at ESPN of loading up the booth, loading up the desk with more and more and more analysts. But Vince Gully told stories. You know, he quoted poetry. He described the weather. He loved baseball. And you could tell he loved it, but you could also – tell that you're in the presence of a, or at least a, the spectral presence of a wit and an intellect and a poet. It's like having, you know, the Beatles and nobody wants to do music like that. Why did everybody not aspire to be Vince Gully? I thought a guy who could do that was Keith Oberman, just because of the range of his intellect. And we talked about it. And I, I think that unfortunately was sort of in the fall of 17 and we never got to execute it. But it does show that I always had this desire to try to do things differently. But, you know, different is spectacular when it works. In its conception for conformists, it's usually not very welcome.
thank you for staying with this. It is an interesting look into the corridors of power here. It has been a pleasure to have John Skipper with us here, and we are lucky to have him. Part four with John Skipper. We're not sure if there's going to be a fifth part or not. We're working on it. But part four with John Skipper will drop on Friday. We are working this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Wednesday and Friday are technically off, so South Beach Sessions is there for you, as are Mystery Crate and Stupidity. And we ask you again to please support the things that we're doing, worldofsui.com, the Ron McGill Endowment, if you want to give any money there, and also all of our podcast entities, Levitard and Friends Network, the Dan Levitard Show with Stugatz. We ask you to rate, subscribe, and review because we need the support right now as we're making all this content ourselves. Nobody is paying us. We are homeless. We are free agents. We are a pirate ship. And if you believe in the idea of what we're doing around here, bringing our audience around, showing the inner workings of how a startup starts up in the modern age of digital media, we are with you on the ride and we are appreciative that you have boarded the pirate ship. Another South Beach Sessions, Friday, Part 4 with John Skipper.